Welcome to the Droma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association, or JOMA, podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I am a general pediatrician and a proud JOMA member, and I am super, super excited and honored to be here today with Dr. Alexandra Friedman. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Dr. Alexandra Friedman is internationally recognized for her distinctive accomplishment of graduating at the top of her medical school class while simultaneously raising Kanainahara Kenyirbu, 10 children, three of whom were born during her medical training. I feel like I have to insert a trigger warning here, um, a super mom trigger warning. Um, we're, we're, we're going to get to that later, but trigger warning now inserted. She has won many awards for her medical research, leadership skills, and community service projects, including the Emily Taylor Outstanding Woman Student in Leadership Award, the Judith Weibel National Visionary Woman in Medicine Award, the Turo College of Medicine Dean's Award, and the William H. Bailey Memorial Pathology Award. Dr. Friedman has years of experience in medical research, including working in neuroscience and molecular biology research labs at the NIH, the University of Kansas Medical Center, and the College of William & Mary. Her primary research interests involve neuroimmune integration and the impact of external stressors on physiologic responses. She is a member of multiple professional honor societies, including the National Pathology Honor Society and the Sigma Sigma Phi Honorary Medical Fraternity. Dr. Freeman is an up-and-coming speaker for a wide range of audiences who share her passion for discovering and nurturing their unique calling in life in order to make the world a better place. Now, see, that's what I love. I, I love this idea. I, I feel like you are truly unique in so many ways, and you've done all of this while raising a beautiful Hasidish family. I think that you are a model of integration, and that is the title of my talk, right? Integrating Life and Medicine, Dr. Ima. You're integrating your strengths, your education, your past as a secular Jewish scientist, and your present as a Hasidish mom and doctor. And I love this idea of inspiring others to find their own way to make the world better. So none of us can be him. I mean, I, I, I don't, I have no idea how you do it. And I, I have to stop and just say that everyone wants to know, how do you do it? <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think everyone is an individual And I think that every single person is doing amazing things. And if you knew the intricate details of everyone's life, um, you would see just how, how beautiful humanity is. And we never know. Some people, it's more obvious the extraordinary things they're doing. And other people, it's not so obvious. But I think that at the end of the day, we're each handed our set of challenges and we're all generally doing the best that we can. And so I think that that's, you know, something that I, w- I hope that everyone can appreciate in each other and that that will bring a lot, a lot of goodness to the world as people see that and understand that. Um, regarding my personal journey, it has been, it's been a journey. There are hard times um, and there are better times, but overall I have 
had my grounding in Torah. And I think that has been really made all the difference in my life personally. You still didn't tell us how you do it. <laughs> it's a beautiful answer. I think that everybody, the details, you know, you have a story like that's in the paper and, and I just read a little tiny blurb and it's all the accomplishments and all, all the glory, but you don't see all the work that goes and all the supports that you have that somebody else may not have. And I do want to point out for people who didn't hear the whole story that you, you grew up not from, correct? Correct. Not only not Hasidic, but, but secular. Correct. And that you made it all the way through part of medical school before you left medical school to become from and Hasidish from, which is makes you really unique. Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, as far as um, having benefits that other people don't have, when I first became from, um, you know, my medical career was definitely put on a back burner and for me indefinitely possibly forever postponed or stopped um, as I focused on Torah and my family. And as, as I was from and had years of being in Yiddishkeit, I found myself frustrated with what I felt like so many of my, so many people in the community had that I didn't have the, the from upbringing, the, you know, the, the, the extended from family, the, education in Torah. Um, and it, but at a certain point I realized, you know, Hashem made my life the way he made it for a reason. So rather than feeling less than, or, um, you know, feeling like I missed out, I wanted to just look at how Hashem made my life and try to see what the reason for it all was rather than wishing had been different. And that's kind of the point um, part of what made me decide to go back to medical school with the guidance, you know, of, a, of Rabbanim and, and close uh, mentors, because I realized, you know, Hashem had me be born secular for a reason, had me go to medical school. I, I have this background and it must be, I don't think it was all a mistake. It was probably for a purpose. And as soon as I finally accepted that and tried to, and stopped trying to be or wish I was something that I wasn't, you know, that is, that is when I was able to just, um, you know, go forward into the path that I believe Hashem, you know, wants me to be in and the path that's going to be really my true personal Neshama, personal life journey that I'm meant to be living in. I mean, I'm still so in I, the middle of it. <laughs> you know, I know. I love it because I think there's often a tendency of people who become from to think that their past is not good and to leave it behind. I think there's more and more people who are integrating it like you, mm-hmm. people who are good at arts and stuff like that and said, okay, I can't perform in front of, of men, but I can perform in front of women. And they set up something or they start schools and they teach other young, you know, girls art and dance and stuff like that. So I think there's a lot of integration happening. Um, and I think it's so, so important to be able to take everything you have and use those tools and not think something is not meant to be part of me. Yes. Yeah, I really like that story. I don't remember exactly the story, but you know, the the it's a it's a Torah story where someone dies and they go to you know, uh-huh. Hashem and say uh-huh. I tried I tried to be like Moshe, Moshe. and 
is there uh-huh. something he says, uh-huh. oh, why were you, I didn't want you to be like, you know, I wanted you to be like right. yourself. You know, I think that I heard that story early on in my, um, you know, when I was from, but it, it didn't really, I didn't really understand the full depth of it, you know, right. until I had lived and sort of experienced all that. And so that's what I'm doing. And that's what my goal of, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a very private person. Um, and I don't, uh, Originally, how I even got involved in speaking and all these articles and things was, um, I, it was very, I was very, very hesitant. But mm-hmm. ultimately, I decided, you know, um, I want to take um, my life and if, if to any extent that I can help any other people to have the courage and the, um, you know, the strength to live there life journey that might not be what other people have done, you know, I want to help people see that, that they can do it because I really think that's what we're all here. You know, we're all here for our own journey. And so, um, you know, I, I, I'm, have been willing to break my privacy Mm -hmm. to share a little bit of my life because I do want to show other people that, you know, it's, it's about finding what your real purpose in life is and, and living that, and not letting um, external boundaries and things like that, that that other people might say it's not possible or it's not, you know, right or something like that. Like everyone has to just come within themselves, take trusted advisors and, and live the life that they are meant to live. Um, and so I'm, I'm doing all of this to try to help others as well to do that. I really don't know how you do that either, but okay. <laughs> Sorry, I have to stop saying that. <laughs> but that, that story was exactly the story that I thought about before talking to you today, that mm-hmm. Rev Zushia story. Mm-hmm. The Rev Zushia yeah. stories are some of the best stories, right? Well, yes. But what he says, but why weren't you Rev Zushia? For that, right. I'll have no answer. That's the end of it, right. right? So I'm hoping that this will you know, be an inspiration for people to take from you being the best Alexandra Friedman, right? right? to be the best, whoever they are. Um, but besides external expectations, for example, because um, there will be some people listening to this who are growing up in Haredi Hasidish homes and maybe they're pre-med um, or maybe they're in med school or they're struggling and, and they're coming from a background where it's not um, typical, can find inspiration in your story, um, even though you're coming from a different background, right? Just the idea of, you know, things are hard, but what your background is, is something that you can work with rather than against. Does that make sense? Right. Mm-hmm. So besides those those factors, just the, the don't give up, don't say you can't do it, whether it's medicine or something else, it doesn't have to be medicine. Right. I'm also thinking about um, life events. So you were home from the time you left medical school to you went back to medical school. How many years was that? Um, something like 10 to 12. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Cause I was also home for a period of time and I thought I wasn't going to go back. I needed to stay home for my childhood disabilities. And so a story like this would have also, you know, back then been inspiring for me, even though the details are different. And what I find, um, Interesting now is what I thought was time off was really time on. In other words, what I'm asking you is, what do you think you're going to take from the time that you were home with your kids into being a better doctor? Yes. So um, that was another sort of 
mental turning point that I had to do. Um, you know, I could have started medical school feeling behind and um, insecure, um, non-traditional student, you know, all these things. Um, and I realized that wasn't going to help me or anyone I was trying to help as a physician. And rather, I wanted to see that whole time sort of like a long residency period or a long mm-hmm. research period or, you know, any, you know, so that's exactly what I, you know, attempted to do was to say, well, you know, what am I, what have I learned and how can I apply what I've learned to be a better physician? Um, and then again, in picking residency, you know, I'm working in pediatrics, working with parents and children. And, you know, I, I have a completely different perspective than I would have had when I was young before I had my own children and, and all that. So, you know, I, I really try to look at the pluses of the journey that I've had professionally and personally. Um, and I do, you know, I do find that I'm able to empathize with parents. I'm mm-hmm. able to um, see children, you know, the multifaceted um, components of the children that I'm treating, um, especially adolescents, you know, that is, is a complex age to, to, mm-hmm. to treat and deal with. And, and so, you know, I, I do find that I believe that the fact that I'm in medicine now with my life experience, I think it is making me a better doctor and I'm, I'm grateful for that. And I'm trying to focus on that. I'm sure it does. Now, one thing that struck me was that you want to go into integrative medicine. And that was where really the original integrative word came in. I just kind of cheated and edited it in another way. That's <laughs> almost a pun. Um, so first of all, can you tell us what integrative medicine is? So not everybody listening will know what integrative medicine is. Yes. So integrative medicine is combining um, alternative, quote unquote, people call it quote unquote alternative or traditional or natural medicine with conventional Western medicine. Um, it's, it's a field of medicine where you, you really try to take the best of both and look at each, um, disease or person or situation that you're treating and take the best from both of those, um, types of medicine and treat your patients accordingly. So how did you end up picking that? Um, I mean, I was, I, I would say, you know, since my own, since teenager to college years, I was interested in natural and alternative things, but I was also, you know, pre-med. Um, and I became familiar with the concept of integrative medicine in, well, I first started my research in um, neuroendocrine immune integration at the NIH, which um, sort of touched a little bit upon integrative medicine, but really in, in medical school originally, um, we had, I don't know, a one-hour lecture or something on integrative medicine where a, a, a woman came in, and I thought her her philosophy of treating patients was so amazing. And I thought, you know, this is really, you know, the idea of everything in moderation um, and, and mixing the wisdom of sort of alternative and sometimes Eastern medicine with Western medicine and, you know, or more ancient traditions. I, I think that that is really um where we're going to move forward, uh, you know, uh, to treat people holistically. 
I was wondering whether that came from that period or whether being home as a Hasidish mom also, because the reason I'm asking this is I've noticed that in many Hasidish communities, it's, it's alternative medicine is very popular. Yes. So it's interesting because I, I already had an interest in integrative medicine and alternative medicine. Um, but having lived in the Hasidish community, I was very comfortable in the sense that the majority, many, many women um, are, are interested in treating their families with more alternative and, and holistic medicines. So yeah, that was it. I would say my interest was um, nurtured in the Hasidish community. Um, and I have a lot of friends um, in the community who, uh, you know, who we, we share common values of, of using medicine in moderate, you know, only when necessary, rather than sort of jumping to antibiotics and things right away. Mm-hmm. So what are some examples of alternative approaches you would use? Um, so, I mean, I, I think, you know, like I always say, like, you don't want to go to an alternative practitioner when you need open heart surgery, you know, that is mm-hmm. something that it's not really wouldn't be wise per se. Um so, you know, I, I think, again, it's like, I think preventive medicine and chronic diseases are things that um, conventional medicine has, is still lacking in its ability mm-hmm. to diagnose and treat properly. Um, so I think that, I think what I, you know, from the things that I've investigated um, with those two types of problems, we specifically really do find a lot of benefit from more alternative um, holistic approaches. And so I think, you know, like in my medical practice, that's where I intend to, um, do more of the integrative approach would be for sort of chronic and, um, preventive stuff that, that, that is, is currently really not being handled or, you know, it hasn't been figured out completely by conventional medicine. When, when you say preventive, are you talking about the same as wellness? Cause I, I noticed there's a lot of focus on wellness, and they'll say, okay, yoga and diet and exercise. That's not the same thing. Right. I mean, it, it, wellness is, 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 a more, is a more recent concept. I mean, I think preventive medicine, they, they do overlap. But um, I think that, um, I mean, wellness is a component of pre- preventive medicine. They're not synonymous. Mm-hmm. So what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is maybe some examples of what alternative things you would be using. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to be specific just to get an idea. I, I want to get a little deeper into this in a minute. Yeah. So I think that, I think that there, are, um, there are certain um, herbal and um, acupuncture and... Uh, you know, I, I, I've seen personally people be healed with more alternative medicines for actually even fertility. I've seen some people mm-hmm. have real, but which again, fertility is such a, like anything endocrine hormonal related mm-hmm. um, is, is sort of, um, it's a really complex thing and we don't just have like a pill per se that we can, we can help people. Um, and so I, I've seen people with um, really benefits of, of, um, acupuncture, um, homeopathic medicine 
I totally don't understand it, but I know people that swear by it. Like the <laughs> fact that the less that you use, it's more powerful, you know, is very interesting. Um, um, but I really do know people that, that, I mean, rescue remedy is something that tons of people, I, I, I I've yeah, even right. suggested patients, it's a very safe thing and it somehow, you know, whether it's placebo or, you know, it does work, it does really seem to work, you know, to release, um, anxiety and things like that. So, right. So, you know, I find that people look at it two ways. Everything seems to be so polarized nowadays, either mm -hmm. oh, homeopathy, it's ridiculous. It is not physiologically possible because the way homeopathy works is by diluting it till it's not there. Right. It is a theory of molecular um, memory, but physiologically from someone who is in a Western physiologic mindset makes no sense. Right. And I've seen like science debunkers go on and on about, you know, pseudoscience and alternative medicine is, is nonsense. But if you're thinking about it from a healing perspective, right. Right. Like, you know, a lot of times they'll say, well, what's the placebo? Let's compare it to a placebo. Well, a lot of disorders have a very high placebo response, like 30 or 40 percent. Right. Because there's such a strong mind body connection. So from the perspective of healing, who cares? Right. Exactly. So even if it is placebo, it works. I just um, I just was assigned, you know, in my residency, we're assigned topics to give. And I just randomly was assigned to give a topic on chronic abdominal pain in children and adolescents from the, the very standard, very conventional peds in review. It's sort of like the standard AAP um, mm -hmm. uh, recommendations of treatment. And the ultimate, you know, like consensus on chronic abdominal pain in children, which is a huge problem, it's undeniable that it's a 30 to 40% placebo um, effect with children and that if they don't um, have a component, uh, a mental health component, their pain is real. But if they're not having, if they're not addressing their mental well-being, their pain will not get better. And so, you know, even, even at this point, you know, so yeah, the, you know, to, to help people, if we don't know exactly why, we don't have to know why it's working as, as long as right. we know that it's working. Um, and that's kind of with home, like homeopathy, like I just have seen the effects of it in people. And so uh, I, I think it's better than maybe giving them a pill that might have some side effects, negative side effects. If it works, why not? Why not use it? So I think I think that that's the, the whole point is being open minded, um, but not, you know, not too extreme. Like you said, like, yes, the world is getting very polarized for, you know, reasons we don't necessarily understand, but I think a middle ground is important. And, and that's exactly what I hope to do with it, you know, with an integrative, more integrative practice is to, to be open-minded and what works in, in every capacity to use it and not just to say, it's not, it's not in my, you know, not in, not in what I was, you know, not in what my group of people that I was trained with think it works. You know, like, I, like I try to just take all people's opinions and, use my own judgment to um, see what works and just search for the truth um, and, and sort of practice that. I think that's great. And, and I think evidence-based medicine can be a trap, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I, what I mentioned in you know, my notes to you is that I'm looking, what I would love to see is a healing approach. I think we've lost this. We used to be healers and now we're providers right. of evidence-based medicine. 
Yeah. Just like the electronic medical records are a trap. So is EBM. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think that I, 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 I would really, I'm really, I don't have any extra time, but I'm hoping to find someone I would like to, um, I would, before this generation of physicians that existed and practiced medicine before all of these, um, before businesses took over medicine and hospitals mm-hmm. and before electronic medicine, we're, we're about, you know, that, that generation of physicians that was fully trained without any of that is, is, is retiring and getting, you know, old enough that we're not necessarily going to be able to, um, you know, hear from them anymore. And I would like someone to sort of document their stories and, and remind us what real, what medicine was before all of this right. happened, because we're quickly, um, like from me, go- when I was in medical school originally to now, electronic charting had just started when I was in medical school originally. And now it's the only thing there is. And you occasionally you'll see a paper chart and it's like very bizarre. Um, and the set of physicians being trained right now doesn't really have any concept of what medicine used to be other than the occasional physician they interact with who can't necessarily, you can't really explain explain how much medicine has changed. I happen to have seen it. And, you know, I think like our gener, like certain generation of physicians sort of straddled both worlds, but I I would really, I really would like to compile the wisdom of, of the generation of physicians that practice without um, modern, like the the last 10 to 20 years of the idea of medicine, because it was a whole different, way of practicing medicine, really. And I think we, we can't lose that. Um, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, we also have to go forward. And I think it's still, there's still an opportunity to take and integrate what we have right now. I mean, ironically, the focus on um, business, medicine as a business, um, a lot of times the insurances will cover alternative <laughs> medicine. Yeah. And in a way it may be easier because the c- concern that I have, I have a couple of concerns. One concern is the cost. So a lot of times alternative medicine, which by definition is medicine that hasn't been proven to work, um, is often, you know, something that's not covered by insurance. It can be a tremendous cost. So I'm, I'm hesitant, especially as a parent of, of a, you know, now an adult on the autism spectrum, we're very vulnerable. So I'm, I'm hesitant to tell my patient something, well, here's something that's going to be a big cost to you. And I know it's not proven to work. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So I, I exactly. I actually agree. I think that it's it's it's. So as we move forward, um, there are pluses of of cost consciousness. There's pluses of this idea that physicians are sort of specializing and. Um, you know, the hospitalist idea, you know, it, it, it's really, it's really making sure that we don't lose sight of, of the real goals. You know, it's like, how do we specialize? How do we um, use money in medicine most efficiently and properly, but also not let that become the focus of the practice, you know, let, like, like still remembering the doctor patient relationship, still doing things sometimes just because it's the right thing to do, not like because of the bottom line of, of cost and things like that. So I think, I think that it's, it, it is going to be moving forward, um, finding a way again to integrate, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. To integrate 
the, the amazing things that have happened with, um, I mean, there are, there are amazing benefits to electronic medical charting, but it's also, uh, can cause a lot of frustration. So I think, you know, like it's just like anything else. It's a matter of trying to, um, not just saying blindly electronic medical charting is all good, you know, like, like realizing, wait, what, what, in what way is this making it harder to practice? And what way is it putting a barrier between me and my patient? But then what way is it helping me? And, and how do I, how do I use it to my advantage? And Right, right, right. So other things that concern me about alternative medicine is it's not all of it is necessarily benign. So like if I'm talking about someone comes into me and they're going to an alternative practitioner, I like when they tell me what they're doing. I like to think of things as sort of in a Punnett square and a box of four, you know, won't hurt, but I know won't help, right? Mm-hmm. Won't hurt, but might help, right? Mm-hmm. Won't hurt and will, what will hurt and won't help. Those are the ones you really want to avoid. And there's been certainly things like this. Right. And then whatever the fourth will hurt, will help and won't hurt. Those are the best. Right, that never right, happens. Right, right. <laughs> if it will hurt and won't help, then it probably is medicine because it's been proven right. to work, right? right. Mm-hmm. So that you know that is something that I'm concerned about. Um, I would love to work with um, anybody that sees my patients. I work with therapists and nutritionists, and I would love to work with alternative practitioners to work side by side and say, look, I don't know enough about these particular techniques like acupuncture, um, but I'd love to be in touch with you as opposed to what actually happens a lot of times, which is where the distrust is built by the alternative practitioner to use them instead of us. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. So when people ask my opinion about alternative medicine, I always tell them it it's, it's a medicine, right? So it's, it has just like any other medication, um, the power to heal and the power to hurt. So, you know, like sometimes people like dandelion tea is, uh, I don't really know that much about it, but what it claims to be could potentially be really helpful or very dangerous. You know, I haven't personally studied how dangerous it is. And if I were to use it in my practice, I would. But, you know, anything that that is claiming to be affecting your body, you know, it, it, it might really be. And therefore, you need to really treat it as a medicine. Don't just drink tea all day if it's highly concentrated and, and is, you know, being touted as affecting a certain organ in your body, then you should treat it like a medicine and, and only take it at proper doses and things like that, you know? So that's, and, and the other problem with the other thing that is problem with all herbs and all of that is that they're not regulated. Mm-hmm. They're regulated as um, vitamins, which have not the standards of medicine. And so, and unfortunately the point at which these like fish oil, there is a, um, you know, official drug, I don't remember the name of fish oil, right? But it's super, and so we know it's concentrated, we know it's pure, we know it's safe. And then it's so much more expensive than the over-the-counter, you know, the, than the other fish oil that you could get. And so um, I also tell people that, you know, like you have, even if you are trying to be safe in the vitamins and herbs that you're taking, they aren't regulated. And so we don't even know how much we're taking of this stuff. So you know, that, I don't know how we will rectify that. Cause I think there's, I mean, I've heard there's lots of lobbyists and whatnot, you know, in the world of vitamins fighting against regulation, cause it would, you know, cost them too much money. Um, so, you know, I, but as, as people get more, um, 
using these things and demanding, hopefully, you know, there will be a demand for more accurate, um, you know, measurements of this stuff because it's, it's power. It does have power and it needs to be taken in proper quantities. Right. And that's really important for people to understand the fact that it's not regulated right now and the purity can vary. The concentration can vary. I know a lot of people like to use CBD products. And there was, I saw an article once where they said, you can't imagine the variety of actual concentrations and what else is in these things. Right. So that's why, again, I think as a physician, we should be able to help our patients, but we can't if we don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge, it's, it's so much, it's so much to know. Right. I think that that's, that's problematic. Um, so, you know, when you mentioned before um, abdominal pain, abdominal pain in children is often what they call functional. And we actually have so many of these so-called functional disorders. It's new. It used to be called psychosomatic. At one point, they used to call it hysterical disorders or something like that. Uh-huh. Because the history, you know, the, the woman's uterus is the same Latin root. Right. Meaning it's just the woman, it's all in her head. History, yeah, right. Right. It's all in their head. And and that is something that I hate to mention COVID. I was trying to have this be a COVID free podcast. I can't even <laughs> but but I will say that now that there is so much long COVID, there is finally attention being given to that. I'm hoping at least that it will also and I've read articles that it will filter down to other functional disorders. And again, long COVID, I'm not saying it's in your head, and I'm not saying other functional disorders are necessarily in your head. But there are disorders that we can't pinpoint easily. Like if you have strep, you take a culture. You have strep, it's easy to give antibiotics, you're done. But with chronic disease, sometimes it's a chronic disease that you can isolate, like inflammatory bowel disease, right? Inflammatory bowel disease, like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, and we can pinpoint the actual pathology. Um, And sometimes the person is suffering tremendously. We can't. Yes, that's exactly what this article was. This whole the, the whole breakdown of functional, of functional um, abdominal pain, and mm. it's it's something that we just really have to. I think taking changing the language is is an important start mm-hmm. to not make calling it functional abdominal pain. Um, the the words that have been traditionally associated with psychosomatic in medicine and, and taking those words away, um, I think are very important to not be labeling um, patients, honestly, you know, um, and judging them by just their diagnoses. Right, because you're telling them it's all in your head. That's the first right. reaction they'll have. And that's mm-hmm. why they came up with this encephalomyelagica or whatever. This is the other name for chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and people really, I think that's more of a British term, and people really stuck to it because it's like, encephalomyalgica, whatever, it sounds very like medical. Right. Suffering is suffering. Right. And we need to heal. And these disorders often do have a high placebo rate, not because they're all in your head. I think this is such such a, a, a barrier we have to get beyond to understand that because the mind and body interact doesn't mean that some people have fake disease and some right. people have real disease. Right. So that is exactly... Um, like, thank God I actually have, you know, like I personally have not experienced these types of chronic disease. You know, like I have, I don't have, I haven't personally dealt with chronic fatigue, but for whatever reason, since I was in college, I've been very interested at the concept that stress could impact disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was what my mentor at NIH, you know, I was at, I was in on my undergraduate and there, I was 
staying up late. I mean, I, I have been, I had a lot of stress as a pre-med student, but it didn't necessarily affect my health per se. So, but the idea that it could be affecting my health, I think was very interesting to me. And so, um, you know, I, her, the title of her, of the poster posted on the wall, um, was, you know, how, how stress can make you sick. And, you know, I thought, well, that's an interesting idea. And then, and then the whole, you know, her whole research and, and everything was this neuroendocrine immune integration. And, and again, I, I guess like if, yeah, my brain for some reason is so interested in integration, right? Like in, in, in biophysical integration and spiritual. And uh, that's just kind of the way my brain is. I'm really interested in integration of everything. But um, so exactly this neuroendocrine immune integration is such that, the, you're really your your nerves and your immune system are affected by um, your external experiences, and and your body's having real reactions. And some people's bodies are more sensitive, and you know they have a different um, sort of basis of their autonomic and nervous system. And if and anyone else had that same autonomic nervous system, they would be experiencing the same symptoms. We just you know so judging someone because they have a hyper or hypoactive system. It, you know, is is just not really fair. You know, um, so I think that that is exactly it's it's exactly been the problem for years. And thankfully, we are you know changing the names of these diseases so that they're not they don't have the stigma, um, and and people are being more uh, hopefully being more open minded about about treating them as um, yeah things that need to be healed um, rather than just tell, expecting people to live through it or get over it. But I still think that we have a ways to go because I've seen people dismiss the label functional just as vehemently as they dismiss psychosomatic. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it seems some, to be to be PC. We're just changing the name, but we still think it's all in your head. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, functional means it impacts your function. It doesn't imply anything of, of, of causation and suffering is suffering. And yet I still think we have a whole bunch of people that, you know, in the healthcare field, patients, families who I, I really want to learn that these disorders should be given equal respect or more because they really impact your function. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, change doesn't happen overnight and it, and it mm-hmm. happens in stages. I think um, a widespread acceptance of different terminology is the start. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over time, you know, I think that it will, it will slowly hopefully come to a place that, you know, the, the, this, you know, the, the, the preconceived notions of the old terminology for these diseases will be start to be forgotten. And, it, and, and people will have called it functional pain for so long. And, you know, like hopefully it will eventually, um, hopefully we're moving in the right direction. I think. Um, I, I hope so. But I think that people who suffer from them, um, not only need to get respect, but need to get help. And I think that these disorders often need a integrated approach. <laughs> right. <laughs> Using that word again. No, yeah. but a more, a more multifaceted. And I think from the physician who's filling in their boxes on the EMR, and I'm going to just be blunt about this. Right. Your patient walks in, if they have strep, like, oh, it's so easy, you know, <laughs> and it's not like you even get to code higher for the functional patients. Right, right. right? I mean, I'm just being blunt here. Yeah. I think it's equally hard, no matter what name you use, 
for the doctor to deal with this kind of patient. When you walk in the room with a patient who you think is going to end up having a functional disorder, that's not a quick visit. Right. Very true. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I mean, I still see that in, in, you know, you know, in, in the, I, I don't have that, like, like, you know, when you get an admission or, you know, you hear someone in the emergency room and you read, yeah, you get the sense that, you know, which direction mm-hmm. it's going to go. Right. And a lot of the eye rolling and, 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 you know, sighing and hemming and hawing of, of having to treat quote unquote, having to treat these kind of patients. Right. I mean, it still does exist. Um, and, you know, some people, you know, I, I think I, there's all different kinds of people in the, you know, in the world. I, there maybe are going to be some people that's going to be very hard for them to appreciate this, you know. But I think, you know, I, hopefully more people are getting more open to treating things. You know, like, like, I, like I said, you know, change is slow and you're probably always going to have the naysayers and the negative people. But hopefully if medicine can accept these things as more, I, th- I really do think we are moving more towards um, integrative medicine, more towards preventive medicine, holistic treatment. I mean, I, for the thing, for some of the negative things I see happening in medicine, one of the pluses I think is, is mm-hmm. more open-mindedness about integrative medicine and things like that. I do think so. So what would you say to a group of young doctors? Cause we're having them listen to this, right? They're going to be very interested in your story. And so we, hopefully they're still here with us. What would you say to them to help them deal with such a patient? Because this is something you're interested in, but a lot of doctors may feel frustrated, right? There's nothing they can pinpoint. There's no pathology. There's no test that's going to be positive. I think that like, like you said, focusing on the idea that we're here to heal people you know, regardless of what's causing their pain, you know, we're, we're healers. And if you can just sit, sit down, sort of take a deep breath and listen to the patient, um, with, you know, which we're all taught in medical school, you know, 90% of the diagnosis mm-hmm. or 99% sometimes is in the history that the patient tells you. So when you get that sense that it might be one of these more complex things, if you can just, rather than getting all tense and annoyed, um, and thinking, oh, this is going to be a huge time drain and I'm never going to fix them anyway, you know, whatever it is that goes through your mind, sitting down, um, and just listening to them, um, and then thinking, okay, what could I do? What, what tools do I have within my, what's in my capacity to help them? And literally just sitting down in a chair and listening to them is maybe going to, help a lot of it. You know, it it is being listened to is one of the placebos that often works, um, for functional abdominal pain. Um, it was, I think, I think it, I don't remember what percentage of patients were healed just by being told that their pain was real. I, I, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not even just listening. What you're talking about is validating. Validating. Right. Right. I mean, I think that a lot of people have been struggling with, okay, they're, they're, the doctor's really thinking it's all in your head, whatever word I use, mm-hmm. right. you know, we've had all these tests, we can't find anything. And then they go on this endless quest for the diagnosis, which is really something to validate them. Right. Right. To validate their suffering. It's a separate issue in terms of, of getting um, time off from work and the benefits and whatever. That's, that's a separate issue that has to be fought. That battle has to be fought that again, someone who's suffering and functionally impaired needs to be treated the same whether or not we can pinpoint a specific, right, 
abnormality physiologically. That, that's a separate thing. Right. But I think if you really, and this is what the approach that I take when I walk in the room, is I say your mind and your body are connected. Mm-hmm. It's not a matter of it's all in your head. Your pain is real. And we're going to work on helping you feel better. And we're going to look for things. We're not going to just send you off to a psychiatrist. And if they do have anxiety, I say that doesn't mean anxiety caused your physical pain, but we're going to deal with that too. Right. I mean, yeah, like the pain causes anxiety, right? So, I mean, if you were in pain, you'd be getting anxiety too. So I think, I think that's, I think, I think putting yourself in the other person's um, shoes and, and and realizing that everyone's body's different. Everyone's um, nervous system is set differently. Their experiences of pain, um, and in and knowing that that the person across the across from you could be you, you know, and and you really want to give them the time and the attention that they deserve because they're coming to you for help, and and you have that capacity to help them if you if you try. So I think I think that's the perspective that um, will help help a lot of people. I agree. And and what would you say about, what would it help for people who feel like I can't deal with alternative medicine? It's just um, nonsense. You know, I mean, I think there's patients that feel the same way, you know, Mm -hmm. I I mean, I, I, and so in that case, you know, like, I think there's probably certain patients that don't want a doctor that would ever consider anything alternative and and that's fine, you know, so, uh, you know, Again, coming back to healing, right? So, like, if the five languages of love, you know, like, 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 for mm-hmm. some people, um, they want quality time. For some people, they want alternative medicine. For some people, you know, like, there are some things, you know, everyone's probably going to get better from a strep, you know, infection with antibiotics, right? And and there, I think there are probably also some alternative medicines that probably help would help for most people's, um, and you know, chronic pain or like, there are certain things that are probably going to be universally good for everyone. Um, but if a patient is particularly against alternative medicine, then they would probably do really well with a doctor on the same page. And that's completely fine because there are tons of doctors and we all have our, again, this whole thing of like, we're all here for our unique purpose, right? So the patient, um, population that one doctor is going to have will, will be associated with their same sort of um, outlook on life. And, and that's great. That's great. If people can find the right doctor that, that, that sees health and healing and, and, and sickness from the same perspective and they can work together to heal. I think so. But even if you're not that kind of doctor, I think the, the, the most important thing is not to be dismissive. I remember when my daughter was on some supplements and I went to the hospital for a, I don't know, she was having her tonsils out or whatever it was. And they started going through the medication. And then I said, and fish oil, I'm like, no, no, I don't want to hear about any of that. And by the way, right. fish oil can cause you to bleed for longer. So maybe they should have, you know, exactly. paid a little attention. So just listen right. and take it seriously and ask, what are you taking by the way? Because I think a lot of people don't ask, um, what are you taking and really try to elicit the full history because the patient may be embarrassed are uncomfortable. So I think whether or not that's something you would prescribe or endorse to ask about it and not, not to judge. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. So as physicians, we need to, um, see patients and, um, yeah, not judge them, take them for, if they're there in front of us at the moment, it's important to give them our full attention, our full respect and whatever they're using to heal themselves 
take it seriously because if it's working, then it's working. Exactly. And again, I can't say it enough. The mind-body connection is so strong. I was listening to a podcast and this guy had some kind of chronic Lyme. He had chronic Lyme disease and he was in a lot of pain and he found this machine. And I was, I'm glad he didn't tell me because I would have, you know, had a hard time like taking it seriously, to be honest. He had this machine that splits the virus in his bloodstream in the air or something. It made... It made no sense physiologically, and he wasn't a medical person. And he said, I know this makes no sense, but it worked for me. And I'm like, okay, it didn't hurt anybody, and it worked for him. If it engaged his mind-body healing process, right, right, which is what the placebo effect probably is. Right, right. right. And there's a nocebo effect, too, by the way. You can actually cause harm. One of the first things we're, we're supposed to say, first do no harm, is not right. to do something that would hurt someone. Right. Right. So I think that that's, that's just an important approach. So I told you I would give you a chance to also um, talk about integrating the soul into healing. So I don't know if you have plans for that. I'm curious. Yeah. So um, it's an interesting idea. I think that um, for sure, I mean, so, so I mean, sort of the secular concept of this is energy healing. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't personally, you know, know a lot about that, but I think just from life, um, the idea that like, if our soul is, if we are in touch with our self, which is, you know, really our soul, then we're going to be more aligned. The mind body connection is going to, we're going to be probably healthier from a neurological point, And then our immune system is going to be stronger and, you know, I, I, I do totally think that they're connected. Um, and I think that having that um, connection with our souls is a huge part of, of long health, um, long healthy lives. You know, I think that the spiritual grounding is very good for our bodies. And so I think that it's, a, it's very important what, you know, whatever people's connection to Hashem is, is very important for health. Yeah. I love that. I really love that. And I want to thank you so much for doing this with me. And I can't wait to see what you're going to do when you finish your residency. (laughs) I can't wait. I mean, I think you're going to be so amazing as a completely integrated person and as an integrative physician. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.